I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Something in the mist! Something in the mist! Took John Lee! Man, catch your breath. Something in the mist took John Lee. I could hear him screaming. Shut the doors! Shut the doors, my God! Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I'm your host, Armand Haddad. This season, we're exploring the cinematic adaptations of beloved stories. Today, we are exploring the 2007 film The Mist by Frank Darabont. But before we attempt to survive the supernatural beasts that lie beyond our dimension, I am joined by a special guest, Aaron Hulian. Aaron is an audio engineer here in Chicago by day, but by night, you can find Aaron as one of the talented hosts of the Star Wars podcast, WSDR Galactic Public Access. Aaron Hulian, welcome to the show. Oh my God, Armand, I thought I'd never make it. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> you made it. Yeah, after all those movies that you recommended about sex perverts, we are not talking about one today. Hey, Armand, the new and accepted term is sex pest. Let's not forget that. <laughs> nice. So today we watched, we watched The Mist by Frank Darabont. And since this was my recommendation to you... How'd you first hear about Stephen King, the author of this story that it was adapted upon? Well, Armand, my first exposure to Stephen King was probably through The Shining because I saw the film first and then heard, oh, uh, some whacked out, coked up author wrote <laughs> this thing. Then I heard more about what he wrote with It and Pet Cemetery and Dark Tower. That's right. And it was actually only after I saw this movie that I learned that Stephen King had written a novella that this was adapted from, I went in completely blind. You're just like, <laughs> hey, watch The Mist. And I'm like, okay. And I watched The Mist. <laughs> so uh, it was a pleasant surprise to learn that Stephen King was the author of the source material because I'm not the greatest fan of Stephen King stories. Can I put that <gasps> out there? Oh my God. Why is that, Aaron? I did not know this. The stories are fine. They they just always need the rough edges polished off. And to the extent that movie adaptations of his works are able to do that, they tend to be good movies. When they're not, they tend to be absolutely awful. Bafflingly so. <laughs> um, so uh, it, was, it was a pleasant surprise to me that something like this that I enjoyed so much and that I felt was just so competently put together uh, was forged from the raw material of Stephen King's mind. 
Well, Stephen King is a very prolific writer, and I'm a huge fan of Stephen King, and I'll be the first to say some of his stories aren't the great pieces of literature. It's very popcorn reading. It's fun. It's exciting. But is it like Great Expectations? Is it like Oliver Twist? No, it's not. But it is a fun ride. And funny that you say that some of his stuff is pretty rough. It's no surprise that a lot of his endings aren't very good in Mm -hmm. his books. And like The Shining, Stanley Kubrick took the story and then kind of made it its own thing, separate from the book, because the book and the movie are very different things. And then when Stephen King ended up doing his own version of The Shining, Mm -hmm. it was disastrous. It was... (laughs) It was completely awful. <laughs> it was like yeah. <laughs> it was like direct page to screen adaptation, and it was it was really bad. I was like, "Oh my god, this is so boring. This is so bad." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But with the mist, the way Stephen King approached the mist was definitely different because it paid homage to those old nineteen fifties movies, such as. The Thing from Another World. And I would say it's definitely in the same vein of like old Twilight Zone episodes. Like it definitely feels like, yeah, The Blob. It definitely feels like a throwback movie. And that's probably why I enjoyed The Mist Story, both movie and novella, as much as I do. Because it definitely feels like something that a creative would make. And it's definitely something that a Hollywood studio would not purposefully make right and to that extent you encouraged me to watch the film in black and white which i was able to do and i think it absolutely works really helped uh set the tone kind of shave off the rough edges of some of the visual effects uh and it it just just got me into the right mood yeah exactly like i i made it very clear i was like please Watch it in black and white. <laughs> if you don't have a black and white copy, just turn the color off on your TV screen or mm-hmm. your monitor. <laughs> like, there, there are janky ways to make something black and white. And Borrow some uh, dog eyeballs. Whatever you got to do. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, with Frank Darabont, when he was making this film, he definitely wanted to be like a throwback movie. And he actually intended it to be theatrically black and white. Mm-hmm. But... The Hollywood studio that he went with, which was Harvey Weinstein's company. <laughs> oh, yeah. So another another stain on Harvey Weinstein is that he forced Frank Darabont to release it in color. Oh. So that piece of shit guy almost <laughs> attempted to ruin the mist. So, yeah, Frank Darabont openly says that his preferred version, his director's cut is the black and white version. And Mm. he definitely enjoys both the color and the black and white one, but he definitely says there's a different feel between the black and white and the color. The black one feels like, as we just said, the throwback movie from the 1960s, and then the color one feels like uh, a pulpy movie from the 1970s. So either Mm. way, it's going to feel like you're watching an older movie. Yeah, and I was skeptical at first when you told me, watch it in black and white. Because we've had black and white versions of movies before, Mad Max, Wolverine. And so, and a lot of times, to my cynical mind, it's just felt like a kind of cash grab where (laughs) it's like, no, 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 trust us. It's super artistic and it's the way the director intended. And they just could slap a black and white filter on it, call it a day. Mm -hmm. But no, that's not the case here. There's actually an artistic reason for it. So uh, I I was pleasantly surprised. And the best thing about the black and white, too, is that it makes it look older, and it it covers up a lot of the cheap special effects that are in the movie, because like like every, like a lot of horror movies, it was low budget. It was a low budget mm-hmm. movie. Like, the production company said, like, we love the script, we love the idea, but you have to make it on, like, a shoestring budget. So that's what he did, and I think the black and white cover up the not so great special effects it kind of makes it yeah hides the seams a little bit exactly so before we go any further into the mist you know what time it is aaron oh boy minute to win it 
Yeah, one minute to win it. It's time for some elevator pitches. Please stand clear of the closing door. So for those that don't know, when you're selling a movie to a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So here today, we're going to simulate that by putting 60 seconds on the clock. So Aaron, you are to describe the entire plot of The Mist within 60 seconds. Aaron, are you ready? I'm ready. We are going to start in three, two, one, go. Armand, I saw this crazy movie. It's called The Mist. There's this guy. He paints movie posters for a living. All of a sudden, a storm blows in and destroys one of his works. Uh, and he takes his son and leaves his w wife behind. He's got to go to the grocery store. But all of a sudden, this weird mist starts creeping in. And people start disappearing in it. And it traps everybody in this grocery store. And so things get weirder as strange apparitions and monsters start appearing. <laughs> and people start dropping like flies one by one. But then within the grocery store itself, they all need to survive, but they start tearing each other apart. And you got to ask yourself, what's worse? Being torn apart by the people in your midst or the unknown and the dangers that lurk outside? And so our, our hero needs to get his, get his courage together and make the best decisions to protect his family. Yes, perfect, Aaron. That was amazing. Thank you. You hit all the themes of the movie. Like, yes, there are supernatural creatures that are lying within the mist, and yet the microcosm within the supermarket that they are trapped within is tearing itself apart. Human society is tearing itself apart. Yes. So before we go any further, as you said, he was a painter. So usually Stephen King writes, he writes what he knows. He's an author. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his protagonists are authors. Jack Torrance, as we mentioned in The Shining, was an author. So mm -hmm. the painter, did you notice what he was painting in that first frame? Yes, our hero, Mr. David Drayton. He's hand painting a movie poster for an upcoming film. And the one that he's working on is a portrait of the gunslinger from the Dark Tower novels. That's right. So when I was watching this for the first time, it was in the music box in Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. It was a black and white version too. Ooh. So I'm sitting in the audience and the intro title sequence starts and he's painting Roland, who is the protagonist of the Dark Tower series. I'm like, oh my God, I know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So that was the biggest surprise for me with this movie because I had, I had no idea that he was going to pop up in there. And thematically, I didn't know if you know this, Aaron, but all of Stephen King's work are tied together in not a cinematic universe, but a literary universe, a multiverse. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, and the Dark Tower is at the center of all these books. And the reason why it, it relates to the mist is that these monsters that come out through the mist, through this other dimension, are from Roland's universe of the Dark mm, Tower. That is a neat fact, Armand, and one mm -hmm. I did not consider. I had heard at one point that all Stephen King's stories kind of share the same universe and mm -hmm. Maine is weird and fucked up for some reason in his <laughs> universe. The, the mist notwithstanding, but did not know they were connected in that way. So yeah. neato. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So yeah. So let's get into the mist. So Frank Darabont made this movie and let me tell you, it's fantastic. It's such a great movie because mm -hmm. let's talk about the craft for a second. So Guess who did the creature effects of this movie? Who was it? Who was it, Armand? Tell me. I've been dying to know. It was Greg Nicotero. Ooh. Yes. And he is famously known right now because he does the creature effects for, and the special effects for the Walking Dead series. Yes. That's, that yes. is where the connection is because, as we all mm -hmm. know, Frank Darabont was instrumental in making that series happen. Yeah. And it's kind of fun, like, seeing the Titan right now, The Walking Dead, and then going back and watching The Mist, kind of like this low-budget movie, and you see a whole bunch of Walking Dead actors that yeah. he would later pluck and, like, plop into his TV show, and he collaborated with Greg Nicotero, so this is kind of like the precursor to the big blockbuster show, The Walking Dead, that's... Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it uh, went a little bit longer than it should have, and it's still going on right now. But 
at one point it was as big as Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I remember. And it, it, it goes back even further, Armand. Oh, yeah? Because The Mist was filmed during downtime between seasons of The Shield. And oh. Frank Darabont directed that. And mm -hmm. he wanted to, he basically had some downtime and wanted to get this small movie farted out. So he <laughs> just got a bunch of the cast and crew from The Shield and was like, all right, we're going to make a movie together because we already know all how to work together. And they were able to do it. It was right. just a very fast and efficient shooting style. And they got yeah. it done uh, in between making making another show. That's crazy. So, yeah, the shooting style of this movie, I don't know if it's like been used before. I don't know if you're familiar, but like they treated filming this because they had under a month to get all the principal photography done. And the way they achieved that was having multiple cameras out and they were treating it as if they were filming a play, a theater performance. So like mm -hmm. this ensemble cast going around in the supermarkets and they would have like five different cameras capturing all these different shots. And so mm -hmm. w within like a week, they would get like almost all their you know, filming done, which is crazy. Yeah, but that's not to say it's kind of like a lazy style because, you know, they, they obviously storyboard the stuff and they, mm -hmm. you know, get the shots that they need to. When you say this kind of style, I mostly think of the Duplass brothers. They directed uh, Jeff, He Who Lives at Home. And it's just <laughs> awful because, like, all the most of the dialogue is improvised. They don't do any oh, blocking boy. or storyboarding. No. They just kinda, yeah, they just kind of, oh you God. know, set up shop on the day and shoot whatever coverage they can think of at the moment with predictable results. <laughs> right. Um, was Adam Sandler involved in this production? No, but it's another <laughs> apt comparison. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Like Frank Darabont definitely used that filming technique to not only be efficient, but also to get really good performances out of their actors because they're all like working together and kind of like feeding off of each other's energy. So yeah, definitely mm -hmm. not the easy way out. <laughs> No, um, it can work really well if you do like your homework beforehand right. um, and make sure that everybody's rehearsed and you do storyboard and block it out so that you know you get the shots that you need to, uh, but it can inject some kind of fresh energy into it and it's a very time efficient shooting style. It just needs to be <laughs> handled by somebody with craft and skill and has a story in place and all, all the other prerequisite things that nobody likes to talk about when you're making a movie, but you need to have. Right, right. So let's get into the plot of The Mist. So we're talking about the craft and its themes a little bit so far, but let's get into the driving force of this movie, and it's The Mist. So mm. like you said, there's a painter, big shot creative that lives out in Maine and he's in this small town and he goes to the local supermarkets for some groceries, you know, a quick stop, you know, like you would go to the grocery store to get some few things, milk, eggs, whatever. And you expect right. to be in there for like, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes and then go home. So he goes there and as he's shopping, something crazy happens. Aaron, what happens? Well, uh, we get a little bit of a peek at this because uh, we hear we, we see a bunch of military trucks driving down the road as he's on his way to the grocery store we hear some chitter chatter about uh, a nearby military testing site but then once they're at the grocery store and uh, this mist starts coming through man starts running up he flies into the supermarket mm -hmm. he, he's he's bloody he's frantic and he is just screaming about something that is hidden in the mist and is attacking people. Yes. And people have no idea what the hell he is saying. Yeah, like, that is definitely a callback to those old creature features from back in the day where, mm -hmm. like, they're not going to beat around the bush. This guy comes screaming, there's something in the mist. It yeah. took this guy, there's something in the mist. And... Man, like it, it gets you in that frame of mind 
right out of the gates. And it's such an effective way to start the movie. Then seemingly this cloud of mist approaches and surrounds the supermarket, trapping all of these people in there. And of course, there's this one guy like, no, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go to my car. And as he gets to his car, you can hear him scream and wail and then silence. So Mm -hmm. obviously there's something in this mist. We don't know what, but it is dangerous. Indeed. And so people, and this, this starts one of the running themes of the movie or motifs is people not believing each other, even when the facts are obvious. Mm-hmm. And say otherwise, they just simply refuse to believe this guy about the mist until it, it, it's unmistakably clear. It's not clear if this is like a property of the mist itself that just makes people like not want to trust or believe in each other, or if it's really just kind of a statement about how human beings act in times of uh, mm-hmm. emergency and crisis. Right. right. Like if you or I were placed into the situation where we're trapped in the supermarkets. I the first thing I would think of is not that there's a supernatural threat and like the end of days is upon us. Like I would think of so our main character, his neighbor, Brent Norton, he quickly says like this must be some sort of like natural disaster, maybe a chemical fire maybe like an act of terrorism, but like something, something's going on and we need to call like emergency services. Mm-hmm. And of course they're completely cut off from the world. Phone lines do not work. Like cell phones don't work. Like they're isolated in this building. And yeah, like you said, like even though the threats that there's something eating people outside and they choose to ignore it, they choose to rationalize it. They choose to be skeptical. Like, no, obviously, that can't happen. That's not real. Mm -hmm. Like, we need to figure out what exactly is going on, and we need to go out into the mist. And one of those people who wants to go out is Melissa McBride. Yes. She's she's there. She plays this uh, mother of two young children. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has run to the grocery store for a quick errand and is now trapped inside, and her two young kids are at home. She wants to leave and go check on them despite the danger and puts everybody on the spot, asks mm-hmm. if anybody's going to go with her. Yeah. Nobody's brave enough to do that. So she tells them off and goes off on her own uh, in, a, in a pretty powerful scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melissa McBride, even though she has a very, very small role in this movie, she knocks it out of the park. Like mm-hmm. she... I mean, she only had like, what, five minutes in the movie, but she made those five minutes count. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even less, maybe like a two minutes. Like she Mm -hmm. made those two minutes count because like it's one of the most, it's one of the more memorable performances in the movie because like you definitely feel her pain because like she's separated from her children and she only has like the context is she left her eight-year-old to look after the younger and she mm-hmm. was only going to stop into the store for like, what, five minutes? Just pick up yeah. one thing and come back. And of course, that's not happening. So she asks for help. Like you said, everyone's too scared. And she ventures out into the mist. And mm-hmm. that's it. We don't know what happens to her until, you know, as the movie progresses. From there... We have a lot of interesting characters that pop up. So we have our main character, who's played by Thomas Jane. His name is David mm-hmm. Drayton, the painter. And he's pretty... He's like the everyday guy. Yeah. Like, he's, he's pretty bland. And I think he's bland on purpose, so then the audience can place themselves into that position. He's like the surrogate for the viewer in this well, weird... He's- He's not just bland. Um, He's a bit of a blank slate, but he's also, he's level-headed. He's reasonable. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to do the right thing. He's just trying Mm -hmm. to protect his son and everybody else that he can at the grocery store. He's just not the most well-equipped. He's not some Mm -hmm. super soldier type. He's he's just a guy, but he's, you know, in this crazy situation, he's just trying to make sense out of it. Right. 
Like, he's definitely the voice of reason uh, within this group, for better or for worse. Mm. He's definitely not skeptical because he has seen the danger of the mist, and yet he's not letting it, you know, carry himself away with the whole situation. Right. Um, he's, he's definitely the most level-headed person. Um, from there, we have Laurie Holden, who, you know, he's, she's in your favorite movie, Silent Hill. Silent Hill, <laughs> yes. Sybil Bennett. And also The Walking Dead. And she is definitely not the damsel in distress, kind of echoing Sybil Barrett's in a little ways, mm-hmm. with like, you know, holding her own. And she's the only character in the entire movie that actually has a firearm. Yes. She has a little revolver in her purse uh, mm-hmm. as for protection. Yes. So let's talk about the most interesting character in this movie, and that is Mrs. Carmody. Yes. What do you think about her? Uh, be- between her and Lori Holden, I felt like I was watching Silent Hill all over again. <laughs> um, m- m- Mrs. Carmody, uh, she is a she's a local in the area, and this is important in that this town kind of has like an even mix of locals and people just stopping by for the weekend or just passing through. Uh, she's a local, and she's a bit of a religious nut. She, as soon as the mist comes in and people start dying, she starts spouting off a bunch of religious nonsense and quoting scripture and Mm -hmm. saying like, basically judgment day is here and we all need to repent and offer a blood sacrifice to those creatures to appease the judgmental God, etc. And she is such an interesting character because like she's obviously her conclusions are crazy but at the same time she's right about a lot of things <laughs> she, she's kind of right that you know these you know creatures can't be reasoned with that mm-hmm. you know the danger is real and it's coming to get us and everything but it's kind of where she takes those to its conclusion that right. is kind of terrible and awful yeah at the beginning of the film she's just like everybody else just kind of writes her off as a as a loon mm-hmm. but we see as the movie progresses that she starts uh, building a bit of a following uh, within right. uh, the grocery store until it becomes like this full blown out cult. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mrs. Carmody, like she's definitely the doomsday prophetess of this mm-hmm. group. And the thing is with her performance, it doesn't scream that she's insane. She definitely thinks she's correct. And, mm-hmm. It's just so astonishing seeing how one woman can completely gaslight an entire group of people. Like, oh, it's the end of days. Like, doing, like, these general uh, scripture readings that somehow relate to what's going on. And she makes, Mm -hmm. like, vague predictions. Like, one person will die. Well, no kidding, someone's going to die. Like, there's monsters outside of this building. Like, someone's going to get killed. And... Like, if her vague predictions come true, that lends her credence to, like, oh, like, maybe she is in tuned with a higher power. Maybe she does speak for God, and that kind of elevates her in this little tiny society of people trapped in the supermarkets. And what's interesting about the film is that it doesn't take place within one day or one afternoon. It takes place over the course of three days, and... Yes, I believe so. It definitely showcases how quickly human society can completely fall apart. And Mm -hmm. the movie showcases this because in the beginning, everyone's like, okay, we need to maintain some sort of order. Like there's going to be help. Like we have supplies here. We have safety. But once that's removed, once fear sets into people, people go nuts. Oh, yes. And as a illustration of this, Pretty early on, we have David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. He's trying to maintain order. Electricity is out, but they have a generator on site for the fridges and freezers and stuff like that. He goes back to check on it, and it's smoking. So he checks it out, and there's an exhaust pipe outside the building that is clogged by something that needs to be unclogged. So he gets some of the grocery store employees together. The bag boy, he's like, I'll go, because you know he's young and dumb. But uh, <laughs> they're like, okay, we'll, we'll keep an eye on you. And uh, open up the back door. He gets grabbed by the ghoulies. Tentacles come out and grab him. And they try to uh, pull him to safety, but are unable to do so. Uh, David manages to get a fire axe and chop off one of them. And, but unfortunately, Bag Boy is dragged out into the mist, never to be seen from again. Mm-hmm. And the generator's still not fixed. They basically start talking to some of the people still stuck in the grocery store and tell them what happened. And they're just completely incredulous, like, tentacles? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, Think I'm stupid. I'm not going to believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Brent thinks it's um, a prank being pulled on him because he's a lawyer and he represented a group of people who sued the store, I believe. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly what he says, but he implies some racial undertones to what's going on because he's black in a mostly white population. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, you guys are insane. But then he goes back there to take a look and there's the severed tentacle on the ground and then it conveniently dissolves into a puddle of black goo. Yeah. And so he sees it and he's he's finally convinced that something crazy is going on. But getting other people to believe the truth is such a hard thing to do when you have Mrs. Carmody, you know, going up and down. And, you know, he's he's had it with this grocery store. He's going to take a few people and go out into the mist to nearby to get some help. Mm -hmm. So we have we established that there is a threat. Yes. And now we realize the threat. So at this point, they're going to go out and get help. But uh, our main character, David, suggests that they have a rope uh, wrapped around their waist as they go Mm -hmm. inside. And of course, Brent's like, I'm not going to do that. No. But one of the other locals said, like, I'll do it. You can wrap it around my waist. Mm-hmm. So they all go out into the mist. And I just love this these visuals because like as they walk into the mist, they just disappear. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good set design because like it evokes like dread as you watch these people just slowly disappear and you don't see them anymore. And as they do that, these characters, um, they're holding the rope and the rope begins to jerk and move all about, implying that they're being eaten by something. Mm-hmm. Yes, this scene, Armand, it has been too damn long since I've actually felt shock and terror during a horror movie, but I felt wow. it during this scene. This, was, this is what really did it for me for this movie. Oh. They do a wonderful job of building up the tension up to this point, and then you know horrific, horrible things are happening to these people, but you you can't see what's happening. You just see secondhand evidence of it. Like the rope gets suddenly pulled through everybody's hands. They're trying to keep a grip on it, but burning up their hands. So they need to like grab some other like cloth and things like that to take a grip on it. And as they pull the rope back, there's, uh, they could see like some blood along Mm -hmm. the rope. And then eventually they pull it back and it's just the lower half of the guy that they tied the rope to. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite sequences in the movie because, like, it definitely gets you. It's like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you feel that terror build up within you when, you when you see those things happen on screen. And I really enjoy this false sense of security that these people have because, like, they're stuck in a building and you would think, like, oh, we're safe inside this building. The monsters can't get us. But mm. the entire front facade of this supermarket is glass. 
All plate glass. Yeah, which is easily breakable. Yeah, like Frank Darabont's showcases with all these different characters and the setting that these people, even though they have great intentions, still succumb to fear. And mm-hmm. um, even though there's this existential threat looming above them, that's still not enough. And they try to find some sort of reason, some sort of safety within this, and they find safety within Mrs. Carmody. And like you said earlier, she was, you know, brushed off as a loon, but as the film progresses, more people gravitate towards her post-apocalyptic messages. Yes, and at the same time, you have this kind of other faction of survivors popping up where there are the more kind of rational, level-headed, reasonable people and one of these people is the store supervisor, Ali, played yes. by the wonderful, magnificent Toby Jones. He's the guy yeah. who gets turned into a computer in Age of Ultron? <laughs> no, it was... Uh, Winter Soldier? It was, it was Captain America. It was either Winter Soldier or Civil War. It's one of the Captain America movies. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful character actor, and in this case... Uh, he does a great job portraying Ollie. He's kind of this like unassuming uh, supervisor. He, you know, he's helping bag groceries at the beginning, but he turns out to be a lot more level-headed and reasonable and capable than anybody gives him any credit for. Mm-hmm. At one point, Lori Holden, you know, produces her pistol and says, "Hey, I've got this." And Ollie remarks that you know he was this uh, award-winning target shooting champion from like 1995 something like that so he turns out to be the most capable person in the store when it comes to survival and using weapons and so he he starts gathering this group of survivors to actually do something to survive uh in this case stacking up a bunch of dog food and fertilizer in the front of the store to create a barrier for to prevent anything from coming in so Mm-hmm. You have a group of, of survivors who are all helping him do that. And then you have this kind of other faction of survivors who are all going crazy and subscribing to Mrs. Carmody's nonsense. And she's kind of stoking the fears of flame and yes. distrust. Her performance was absolutely fantastic because like all of these characters, like they don't feel like characters. They feel like it's like a window into these people's lives. Like mm-hmm. the performances are so realistic and that's what like gets you invested in the story because like yeah it has like the sheen of like this uh pulp 1950s monster movie but like beyond that you can see these real characters put into this extraordinary situation where these lovecraftian monsters come out of this dimension to terrorize these people and at the same time the fragility of their human behavior is like slowly devolving and like breaking and they're becoming more animalistic in what they're mm-hmm. doing. So I do want to mention that uh, since we talked about these motivations of these characters with Mrs. Carmody, she stoked the flames. She uses the fear of the people wrapped in the religious fervor, the religious fears as like, her foundation to instill like her plan and Mm -hmm. ultimately she wants to be in charge of this group and she achieves it by like i said earlier gaslighting everybody into believing that this is god's wrath upon the earth Mm -hmm. kind of like a cult of personality feeding her ego as the kind of uh, prophetess for being able to predict or broadcast this kind of crazy plague that she claims that God is sending on the earth. Exactly. And she uses, you know, like you said, scripture, uh, references to the Old Testament, Moses, the seven plagues that he unleashed upon the ancient Egyptians. So she uses that as a context of, see, the same thing is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Don't you believe me? I have all the I have all the answers. I have the truth. You follow me. Right. And our main character, along with Laurie Holden, they still have a contingency of people that are still rational, that are looking at this for what it is. Like, yeah, there's monsters out there and that's crazy, 
but we still have to survive and to be, you know, in control of the situation. So mm. he even says, like, we have our own Jim Jones, and I don't want to be here when they drink the Kool-Aid. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. For people who don't realize, that phrase comes from the uh, the, the Jonestown massacre. Read up on it. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's horrific. And mm. you probably won't want to use that phrase casually afterwards. No. And Mrs. Carmody definitely mirrors these apocalypse cults that were in the 1970s that played on the fears of people and she definitely has that drink the Kool-Aid moment later in the movie when she then asks, like it escalates and escalates and like the peak escalation is when she asks for human sacrifices to the mist. Mm. That's when the movie just goes completely nuts, in my opinion. Yes. So uh, after some creatures try to get into the grocery store, mm -hmm. They fight him off. One guy gets burned in the process. They're yes. like, okay, we got to go to the nearby pharmacy, which is basically like in the same parking lot as the grocery store. Mm -hmm. uh, King's Pharmacy. Nudge, hey. nudge, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> they, uh, so there's a contingency of survivors who go over there. They manage to survive, but there's a military police member in there who's all strung up by spider webs and stuff, and he kind of warrants warns them that the army is responsible for this. It's all our fault. Then he gets like eaten from the inside by a bunch of spiders. Then they come back. They start talking to one of the three soldiers, off-duty soldiers who are trapped with them in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Private Jessup, played by our boy Sam Whitwer. Yes. He's basically cornered by a bunch of the survivors and told to spill the beans. And he basically says that he was working on this on this base. He wasn't close to what was going on, but he knows about something called Project Arrowhead, which mm -hmm. uh, had something to do with opening up portals to other dimensions. Mm -hmm. Again, he doesn't know much about it, but there and there's a lot of vagueness and mystery to mm -hmm. what he's saying. But I think that's to the movie's credit that we're not given all the details. But it's just enough for the Mrs. Carmody survivors to. Uh, basically make him the scapegoat so yeah definitely and the plot thickens a little bit with that too because like we don't really know where the mist came from and i think it provides enough context to draw your own conclusions as a viewer like it's not spelled out they're trying to open a window the military they're trying to open a window into other dimensions just to look through and accidentally it opened up a portal for all these creatures to come spewing out of and that that's all he knows and he even says like when so it's kind of like that salem witch moments where you're brought in front of the entire village like state your case what mm -hmm. did you do and he's like this isn't like i wasn't even involved in this project like like I'm I'm not responsible at all for what happened what transpired here I'm not even supposed to be here today <laughs> right <laughs> But all, but uh, Mrs. Carmody uses him as like the symbol of the sins of our military trying to do uh, ungodly things or to know too much about the universe. And she even says like, you know, using all these technological advancements like, oh, like splitting the atom, going to the moon, stem cells, abortion, using all of these buzzwords at the time to further uh, gaslight these people into this apocalypse cult what's interesting about project arrowhead is that it kind of relates back to our conversation with from beyond where people are trying to understand what they don't know or what we humans can't perceive like are there other dimensions we don't know in theory most likely mm -hmm. but i don't think it's a good idea to try to create portals into these other dimensions to just take a glimpse because you don't know what's going to happen you could like tear a hole in the universe and with the mist obviously it did not have positive consequences yes and i made a connection when watching this movie to one of my favorite classic video games half-life 2 oh and i learned later this was also based on the 
the mist novella. Wait, are you serious? Yeah, you have these uh, these scientists working in Black Mesa, Arizona, I believe. Yes. And they're working on some particle acceleration nonsense, and they accidentally open up a portal to an alien dimension. Wow. And as a result of that accident, it lets uh, this kind of alien government through called the Combine. Mm -hmm. And all these strange alien creatures who their their whole thing is they kind of take over and assimilate other alien races and basically group them all together into their own massive army. And mm -hmm. the result is so disastrous that within seven hours, the Earth surrenders to this alien race called the Seven Hour War. Wow. But that very idea that we're messing with things we don't understand and accidentally opening up a portal to horrific danger coming through. We see that in From Beyond. We see that mm -hmm. in The Mist. We see that in Half-Life. Um, <laughs> and I would say it goes all the way back to the myth of Pandora's box in that mm. we have some limitations on ourselves as a human species or as individuals, however you want to interpret it. And uh, we, we know there's just some places we just should not go. And if we do, we have no idea what kind of horrors are going to be unleashed if we do quite literally in the cases of uh, these movies and and half-life but yeah it was um very neat to be seeing that kind of common literary thread throughout wow. all these things that i like yeah i had no idea that half-life the franchise was based upon the mist novella mm -hmm. that is that is insane but yeah, now that you lay it out, it's like, oh, obviously, like it's based on this idea. Uh, time and time again, we are meddling with things that we should not meddle with. Like, yeah, like our curiosity, we should strive to know more about the universe that we inhabit. But do we need all the answers to everything? I don't think so. We might be, um, might be upset by what we find if we assume right. that we do. Right, right. So I want to take this into the real world now. So oh. with the increased sightings of UFOs. Don't you mean UPAs? <laughs> UP, UAPs, my friend. UAPs. Unidentified aerial phenomena. Yes. So, yeah, um, our Pentagon has recently said that these UFOs are credible, that these are real, and we don't know what they are. So... Mm. Let's let's have some fun with it. So let's just say our military is doing their own project Arrowhead and that they open a portal into another dimension and that these UFOs, these craft that defy the laws of physics have no conventional source of propulsion that uses gravity to go and traverse uh space-time. Do you think possibly that these are the combine the creatures from the Dark Tower universe, or even humans from another dimension. What do you think they are, Aaron? Well, Armand, I've been, I've been down the rabbit hole of <laughs> UFO sightings and abductions and other interactions with these things. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the UFO landing in Zimbabwe? Where it landed near a school of children and they all saw yeah. it? Yeah. A little bit. And they all came out, saw this thing. And they all received a telepathic message that was basically saying, you know, take care of the environment, take care mm -hmm. of your world. It's very interesting that a lot of these interactions and abductions that we've had, we, because of our own fear, we kind of ascribe dark intentions to mm -hmm. whatever these things are, you know, that they're spying on us and that mm -hmm. they're, you know, plotting their invasion and they're. You know, they're going to abduct us all and cut us up and scatter our parts to the wind. We don't have a lot of evidence that whatever it is that they're doing is to cause harm. Mm. Seems to me that a lot of these interactions are, they're more curious. And in the case of like the Zimbabwe UFO landing, like even kind of beneficial. And so it really does make me wonder how much of this kind of unease or anxiety about UFOs or UAPs, uh, his projection of our own fear onto mm -hmm. what these things are. And it, it almost makes me wonder if they are kind of beings wanting to make contact with us, if we're simply not ready 
to mm. do that because we are so bound up in fear and the all the horrible nastiness that we get up to as a result um so i i i do wonder if they're here for some kind of beneficial reason what that might be um and what would make the most sense i think if we take it from the approach where we don't fear these things but um see what we what we can learn from them i think that puts us in a much uh better position right we're probably not going to get the pentagon saying ladies and gentlemen please welcome commander zipsorp <laughs> of omicron percy i8 <laughs> yeah <laughs> no yeah but yeah I, I do want to unpack uh what you said earlier about our own fears being projected onto these objects that seemingly have no clear objective so like with lovecraft he was so he was very racist and very xenophobic like he was so afraid of the stranger he was so afraid of what was different and i think us as a human race might have the same uh, viewpoints on things that we can't understand so like yeah like these ufos are scary because they're truly the unknown because we have no clue what they are and of course we are afraid of those that are different, afraid of those who are strange to us. So, of course, we're going to attribute those fears that we have as a human race to things that we can't comprehend. And that mm -hmm. includes UFOs or phenomena that we can't understand. And to give the devil his due, like, there's plenty of, of things out there that we don't understand that are far more dangerous than we could have anticipated. Um, that we have no idea what we're meddling with. And so we do need to be careful that however which way we approach this, that we're not going to uh, unleash something that just has disastrous consequences that we never could have anticipated. Right. A an easy example of this is uh, cars, automobiles. Mm. At one point when we invented them, they were basically the physical embodiment of individual freedom we can cross one side of the country to the other all by our own skill and autonomy and i get in my car and i am protected from the outside world and it's just my own domain that i can control and direct wherever i wish and we as americans exported that everywhere and that's psychologically at least what a car was yeah well we didn't anticipate that it would also you know pollute our environment and make the earth warmer and mm. uh cause all these traffic accidents and things like that so it's like right yeah we have this great invention but it also brought about unintended consequences and so to give the devil his due we do need to be aware of that however we approach whatever this is exactly and now we have geniuses like elon musk that are <laughs> trying to reverse that by having self-driving vehicles and electric non-pollution vehicles so mm -hmm. you know i guess uh whatever consequence we create there's a counterbalance to like even it out so but yeah going going off of what you said we'll always be afraid of what we don't understand mm -hmm. and i don't i don't see a way to circumvent that and films are kind of like our emotions displayed on screen and with pictures like the mist from beyond silent hill like obviously we're afraid of what we can't comprehend and mm -hmm. like yeah we get exciting films from that like the mist that we're talking about right now but that mindset needs to be aware of itself yeah all, the the best that we can do is just be as rational and reasonable as possible in mm. the midst of horror and <laughs> mortal danger which is not easy right but we do have david and ali and co uh <laughs> doing their best to to maintain that yes going back to where we left off they learn about project arrowhead from mm. this private jessup and they decide he needs to be a human sacrifice to appease whatever creatures are out there in, in the mist mm-hmm he gets stabbed in the stomach and is kind of shoved outside and left to die. And he kind of turns back to the grocery store uh, and leaves a bloody handprint on, yes. on the door. 
And I, I thought that was so poignant because it could have just as easily been, you know, some blood splashed on, on the door from whenever the monster gets him. But it's a, it's a very human symbol mm-hmm. putting that bloody handprint there. It's like the monsters didn't kill me. You killed me. Yeah. Like what Mrs. Carmody was trying to do was dehumanize whatever the human sacrifice was going to be to appease the gods or these monsters that are surrounding the grocery store. And it exemplifies the mob mentality of like, you're getting carried away and you don't really understand what you're trying to do until the very end when it's too late, when they throw the guy out beyond the doors of the store that they realize like, Oh, we're just killing this young man. Mm-hmm. Like, what have we done? And that sentiment is taken even further of when uh, Mrs. Carmody's arc comes to an end where after that scene where she's trying to kill off our main characters of David and Ollie next, you know, past the soldier. Mm-hmm. And the entire store is like surrounding them trying to grab them, trying to kill them. And Ollie being the crack shot that he is takes aim and shoots Mrs. Carmody in the head. Mm-hmm. Shoots her twice. Yeah. Shoots her twice. Once in the hearts and once in the head. And when that happened, the entire air of that tension just left the room mm-hmm. immediately. It's like the spell was broken right then and there. Yes. That was a good way to think about it. Yeah. When that happened, our main characters left the store and ventured out into the mist to find help. And from there, the ending is beyond comprehension. The ending is. This is the most, this is the darkest ending I've ever seen a movie do, period. Yes. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody who mm. wants to watch The Mist. It is that, it is that good? It is that powerful? All I can say is it takes things to a rational, logical conclusion. And as soon as it does, kind of the bottom drops out from everything and it, kind of reframes everything that you've seen in this movie up to this point. Right. The one small scene I do, I do want to uh, point out is when uh, the survivors are in the SUV driving away from the store. They stop at one point to try to remain undetected. And this giant creature must be at least 20 stories tall, mm-hmm. uh, just lumbers over them like a, like a large camel. Yeah. And it, it just... It's a beautiful shot, but it also is horrifying and it underscores just the the gravity of the danger that they have gotten themselves into. Right. And it's almost too much for words, the way it makes me feel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like there's a quote in the Dark Tower at the end of the book, the first book, The Gunslinger, about size. And size encompasses everything and defeats everything that ultimately there's something going to be bigger than us. Like we are just one small thing in the universe and like seeing this huge lumbering monster just walk past you and not even glance at you kind Mm. of makes us feel insignificant. Absolutely. It's that feeling of smallness and insignificance against a hostile universe that does not care about you. Something really, really humbling about that. Yeah. And before we get into the final segment, I do want to talk about the ending of the novella, which is different than mm. the movie. So the ending of the novella, so they leave the supermarket and they hide out in a house and they're broadcasting on a CB radio saying like, we were the survivors, we're looking for other survivors. And it implies that this mist has encompassed the entire earth. And that's oh. how... That's how the story ends. And there is no concrete ending. It's kind of a cliffhanger. And it is a short book. Like, you can easily read it within a day. And, yeah, like, it's definitely open-ended. While the movie is definitely a firm ending. It's a very light way of putting it, but yes. (laughs) So, to close the show, here on Syndicate, we like to do one reason why. What is the one reason you'll give somebody to watch The Mist? 
I don't feel things anymore, Armand. Um, <laughs> so when a movie like this comes along where it actually makes me feel things like shock and terror and disgust and fear and dread, uh, it's, it's something special. Don't watch this right before going to bed. You have to be in the mood for a movie like this. But I will say it is a finely crafted film. Great performances. Great atmosphere. Even if the characters aren't the most fleshed out, you identify them very well. And they remind you of people that you know in your own life. And so all of that comes together with, a, with this devastating ending that... I mean, it's, it's, it's why we go to the movies. It's to mm. actually yeah. feel something and to make you think about human nature and why we are the way that we are and how to connect that with other things that you've seen. And I know this is going to be a long episode of, of The Syndicate already, uh, but there's just so much to talk about with the themes that it uh, touches on. It, to me, that's, those are all the hallmarks of a great movie. Makes me think, makes me feel, makes me reevaluate my life. Those are all great reasons to recommend a movie. And I do want to echo one of your sentiments, which is that the movie evokes such emotion out of you. And like you said, like the characters as a whole aren't very memorable, but there's one major character that we have been talking about the whole time, which is the mist itself. Mm. This movie characterizes the setting as a character and it definitely has a life of its own. And in doing so, it evokes emotion from the viewers, evokes emotions from these actors that are playing these characters within this story. And like you said, it makes you question and reevaluate human nature and i think the movie does a great job of showing how quickly this facade of society could crumble at any time just when you take away you know the needs of safety and food and and when you instill fear like you definitely have a a tinder box that's ready to explode and mm -hmm. given the right person like a mrs carmody or someone else that has nefarious agendas, you can easily see how people can get carried away and succumb to their fear and not be rational. So I think this movie, even though it has the aesthetic of like this pulpy monster movie, when you go a little bit deeper than that, when you go just under the surface, you'll see like this movie says a lot. And I think it's, a great movie. It's not for the faint of heart, but mm -hmm. it's definitely a movie that will make you think. And that's the best type of movies out there. Couldn't agree more. Armand. Yes. Where, where has Frank Darabont gone? What have you done with him? <laughs> Why isn't he making movies anymore? He's not making movies anymore? I could have sworn he was... Well, he... When's the last time you've seen the Frank Darabont film? Well, he was... He started The Walking Dead and AMC... To, I'm not going to mince words. They fucked him over pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Like he wanted to create something like The Mist, something like Shawshank Redemption. And a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. AMC didn't want to do that. They wanted a, a money-generating show. They wanted to be what it is right now, and they kind of screwed over Frank Darabont because he wanted to create an award-winning show that displays human nature and you could see that within the first two seasons of the walking dead and mm-hmm. how quickly that tone shifted moving forward from there with the new showrunners that they hired on after they fired frank darabont that's a shame i don't I don't know if he's blacklisted or just doesn't want to work in hollywood anymore but the mist was pretty much the last you know big movie that he directed I wouldn't blame him. He he had a long career, like since the early 80s till the mid-2000s. That would be a good time to stop, but I could see why he would be disillusioned after the legal quagmire that he got himself into with AMC. Yeah. It's a shame. But maybe one day he'll come creeping back in just like the mist. Yes. Just when you least expect him. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about The Mist by Frank Darabont. Please check it out where it is available. And now I would like to take a moment to thank my guest, Aaron, for coming on to the show. Hey, thanks, Armand. It was a great time. It always is. And if you'd like to hear more of Aaron, please be sure to visit him on his podcast, WSTR Galactic Public Access, on your favorite podcast app. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is C-I-N-E. D-I-C-A-T-E Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Have questions or film recommendations? Please email us at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. Goodbye.